Virya Sambo Janga, the awakening factor of energy. Once our beloved Bodhisattva in time immemorial was born as a young prince. And at the age of 16, his mom, the queen, sent him off to study. He went a long journey. He finally arrived at this, uh, to, the, to the master of this great learning center. And he studied there for many years and learned all the, the arts of, of leadership and uh, compassionate and generous guidance. He also learned all the arts, all the martial arts. And in this particular life, he was gifted with the so-called five weapons, bow and arrow, spear, sword, club, and shield. Gifted student, he uh, became very accomplished, and when he was ready to leave, his master said, uh, named him Prince Five Weapons, and said, see that you use your gifts wisely and compassionately. And the Bodhisattva promised he would. So he, he started off on his way uh, back to his home kingdom. Went over many mountain passes and crossed deserts and fording uh, big rivers and so forth. And at last he came by this large and very dark forest. And blocking the entry were sentinels and huge logs. They said, you may not enter into this forest. Well, why not? Said Prince Five Weapons. And they said, well, there's this, this ogre, this monster in there. And uh, anyone who goes in never comes back. Uh, and if they do, you wouldn't want to see them. So I advise you not to go. What? Said Prince Five Weapons. I've done all this training and put my trust in myself, in the truth. And you're telling me I can't go into this forest? Nonsense. And he leaped over the logs, and before they could catch him, he was deep into the forest. The further he went down to the trail, the darker it got. And vines were tangled all over the place, and soon uh, lost his way, and there were eerie sounds coming from everywhere. And all of a sudden, he heard this tremendous crashing, crunching, and, and uh, trees, 30-foot-high trees, 40-foot-high trees came crashing down. And then all of a sudden before him was this monster, this ogre. He was covered from head to toe <clears throat> uh, with this sticky mass of hair. In fact, it was all arranged in dreadlocks. <laughs> and he had huge saucers for eyes. And his ears looked like uh, rotting iceberg lettuce. <laughs> and, he, and he had earrings all up and down the ears, but they didn't help whatsoever. And his teeth were these long fangs filled with cavities. Birds would fly in and out and nest in the holes in his teeth. And his fingernails were long claws protruding out of the dreadlocks on his hands. And he eyed this young intrepid Prince Five Weapons and said, where do you think you're going? Prince Five Weapons, well, I'm going through this forest. It's the shortest way back to my kingdom. 
And he said, do you know that anyone who comes through doesn't come out? Now, I eat little princes like you for breakfast. You better beware, said Prince Five Weapons. I'm a master with all of these weapons. And should you so much as touch me, I will annihilate you, surely. And the monster, you know, roared this awful laugh. <laughs> and a steam of awful breath came out and just about knocked our prince right over. And he started to reach for him with his claws. And swifter than the blink of an eye, an arrow came out and went flying right for the heart of this sticky hair monster. But it just went in a little ways, got stuck and dangled. But that didn't stop him. In a minute's time, he fired all 50 arrows from his quiver, looking for any vulnerable spot. But they all just kind of dangled down. And then the, the uh, sticky hair monster just shook like a wet dog and the arrows went flying all over the place. And Prince Five Weapons had to put up, put up his shield and protect himself. But he wasn't daunted one bit. He then took his spear and with a powerful lunge to the throat let loose on the spear. But it too just went in a few feet and then dangled down, harmless. Still yet, he thought, I, I'm, I'm really masterful with this sword. So he took the sword and was going to jab in there somewhere looking for the Achilles heel of a sticky hair monster and dug in there around his uh, shin. Uh, but it too got stuck after three or four feet and he couldn't move it in or out. Then he thought, I know I'm really powerful with this club. I'll, I'll smash the bones in his feet and then he'll fall down and I'll get him. So he took a big, huge swing with, the, with his knotted old club, ironwood club, and it came down, just bounced up and stuck. But he was out of weapons. So he thought, well, I'm very powerful with my uh, right fist. So he, he big roundhouse uh, punch with his right hand, of course, got stuck. And then his left, which he thought was even more powerful, it got stuck. And he thought, well, I was really good at soccer. So he kicked with his right foot. And then he remembered, oh, but I'm left-footed. I'm even stronger with my left foot. So the left leg came around. It too got stuck. And stuck like that with all his limbs, he thought, I better use my head. <laughs> so he tried to forehead pulverize the shin of the monster and his head got stuck. But in all this, there seemed to be not an ounce of fear. And the sticky hair monster began to be concerned. He thought, never have I seen someone with such lion-like courage. I better inquire some more before I do anything stupid. He said, <clears throat> Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Prince Five Weapons, uh, I notice you're not afraid. And he said, why should I be afraid? I have the truth. I have the incisive sword of wisdom within me. And should you so much as try to eat me at all, you would be sorry. But the sword of wisdom is more powerful than any weapon whatsoever. 
And with this, some movement of heart happened in our sticky hair monster. And he thought, hmm, I think I better let this one go. So he said, Prince Rai Weapons, you have, you've taught me some sort of lessons here today, uh, and I think I'm going to free you. And he took him, took him off of his uh, sticky dreadlocks, set him down, and the prince said, I don't free you. Look at you. You're, you're a mess. <laughs> you don't know how to clip your toenails or fingernails. You, you have cavities. You need braces. You need mouthwash. And you're mean. You're mean-spirited. Why do you think you're like this? If you continue this way, you'll only move from darkness to darkness. But if you put courageous energy into trying to improve who you are, outside, but especially inside, then your lot will change over time. You may even one day be born as a human being and be able to practice and free yourself altogether. So the monster said, all right, I'll do better. And I'll, I'll actually start protecting people who come through this forest. Well, see that you do, said Prince Five Weapons, for I shall return to check on you. And then he shouldered his weapons and went off home. And before long, he did become king, became known as King Five Weapons, opener of the ways. And he did one day go check on his friend, Sticky Hair. And he'd cleaned up his act. He looked good, his dreadlocks were neater, and his uh, uh, earrings were polished, he had braces and cavities were filled. And he, in the meantime, had taken care of his realm. He had cleaned up the forest, uh, pushed back trees, let light in, flowers growing along the path, protecting travelers from dangerous animals and robbers and brigands and so forth. He was a happier being. And they became good friends. King went on and, uh, and uh, did his good works with the um, kingdom. And the monster did what he could, as best he could, in his realm. And he indeed did have many more, uh, thousands of more good lives after that. Sometimes as a rabbit, as an eagle, as a deer. And then one day he began to become a human. And it said that in his last few lifetimes, last four or five hundred lifetimes, he's been a human doing really good works. In fact, it said that he uh, got into the IMS retreat by lottery. <laughs> <laughs> and is here practicing somewhere <laughs> among us. <laughs> Virya means heroic effort or strength of heart or courageous energy. It's Dhamma energy. There is nothing that we can accomplish in all our earthly endeavors without energy. And if the energy is accompanied by compassion and skillful means, it's Dhamma energy. And it has a tremendous effect on our spiritual lives. The great optimism of the Buddhist path of awakening is this uh, virya, courageous energy. No one can do it for us. Is there grace? 
in the Buddhist teachings? Yes. The paramis are grace. And they come from the causes and conditions due to our own intentions, our own actions, our own willingness to venture, to risk. The great optimism of the Buddha's teaching is the liberating nature of virya, the aliveness, the, the passionate presence, the power guiding our own innate urge toward authenticity, fulfillment, liberation. Virya has the characteristic of enduring patience and acceptance, primarily self-acceptance. Endowed with this virya, we have the, the courage and willingness uh, to face our own ogres, inner and outer. With the compassion, we are moved by what we see in this uh, samsara, suffering within and without and so we walk the path with the uh, knowledge of skillful means. We walk the path out of love of the truth, out of love for ourselves, out of love for all beings everywhere. But we face these upward slopes. We face these, uh, uh, these ogres time and again. In some form or another, difficult uh, emotions may come up. Uh, what do we often do with them? Well, we often are, are, are drowning in them, or we project them out on an outer situation, our person, or project them on our own sense of self with identification. Any wide range of difficult emotions can be experienced. In the latter part of this year, since I turned 50, uh, a great time turning 50. It's a wonderful experience. I recommend it if you haven't already. And, and after that, uh, in the last few months, uh, on numerous occasions, for whatever uh, karmic reasons, I experienced in a number of relationships a lot of disappointment, uh, uh, betrayal, hurt. What is the usual tendency to do with when we have these feelings? We, we feel that, uh, that, especially that feeling of betrayal, it always involves someone else. And it's often hard to open to the feeling, uh, to let it in. We want to do something about it. We want to uh, either project it, you know, blame the person, or we want to get rid of it. And, you know, and practice comes up, uh, we try to... Uh, use samadhi to push it away, or uh, use metta, uh, not as a way to embrace it, but as a way to push it away, uh, to avoid it. The courageous energy of virya, however, allows us to really open to the feeling as it is, to let it in. There's a lot to learn with difficult emotions. To feel the feelings, to understand them is the aim, not to get rid of them. The conditions for which they uh, arise and disappear depend on the way that we relate to them with this compassion, with this uh, 
skillful means and with this virya, the courage to open to it. We often might feel, oh no, not this again. I thought I've dealt with this hurt, this pain, this betrayal. You know, I should be done with it now. Another shouldn't be here. But often we have to go through many cycles of it, many layers of it. And when we get to know it, very interesting things can happen. You know, and in discussing uh, the feeling of being betrayed or disappointed with, uh, uh, with one person, you know, I learned that that person too actually felt betrayed by different circumstances. And so it helped me to understand the feeling of it and, and to even know in past betrayals or you know, people with whom di communication is still difficult that perhaps they too, in some way, feel betrayed. And so it encourages me more and gives me more inspiration to understand the emotion more, to deal with the emotion internally. And, of course, all these difficult moods of mind, emotions, have to ultimately de be dealt with inside of ourselves. Otherwise, we're entirely dependent on rearranging the world, the environment. Uh, you're working it out with everyone, fixing it in some way. But if we learn to, to, do, to be with it inside of ourselves, that's where the real healing is. That's where the empowerment is. That's where the liberation is. If we can sidestep the, the idea of perfection, I shouldn't have this anymore. I should be rid of it. This is bad. This is an obstacle. We can sidestep step perfection as a defense to feeling these feelings, these emotions, and learn to experience it. Then there's deep understanding and deep potential for a flowering out of that difficulty. Um, friends of ours who've who have been married a long time, they were uh, once planting uh, lilies along a wall, a new wall that had been built. And they, uh, it was a long project and they weren't getting along very well. So they were fighting the whole time they were planting lilies. <laughs> you know, slogging away in the mud and rain and so forth and just battling with each other. You know, so they'd throw the bulbs and cover it up with dirt. And it was a, the experience was really difficult, was awful, was disastrous for them. And recently, one of them said, you know, I drive by the wall now, and there's all these lilies, and they're blooming, and they're beautiful, and they give me such a good feeling. The experience of doing it was really painful and difficult, but the, the result now is this, is this uh, shining, effervescent flowering of the lilies and it makes me happy. Any of these mind states, any of these difficult states, if we, if we have that courage, that, uh, that uh, undaunted uh, strength of heart of Prince Five Weapons, or Prince's Five Weapons, we, we can find in those difficult emotions a uh, a, a seed that can germinate into something very beautiful.
Practice is not without its struggles. Many ebbs and flows. Sometimes despair and misery. As I think I mentioned before, there's even a, a skillful, healthy despair. Healthy misery. Stages of practice that we go through where that's its nature. And, and uh, we just need more courage to go through it. It's helpful to keep an attitude of, of going toward the good and differentiating between good and pleasurable. Good is not always pleasurable. And we look closely, we see that the, the pleasure side of desire can hide the deep. Pleasure is often intoxicating and it uh, anesthetizes true feeling, covers the deeper yearnings, the, the dhamma desire. So pleasure is not necessarily leading to the good. Good is not necessarily pleasurable, but it leads to real deep fulfillment and liberation. The courageous energy is also about the courage to know our limits, how to move with compassion and skillful means into what's difficult and out. It may be good, but it also may be really painful. And to be with pain too long, pain has the, in the Buddhist psychology, has the effect of withering the mind and draining the energy. So it's not always so skillful to stay with pain, physical or mental. We need to have the courage to, to back off, to rest somewhere else, in the body, in sounds, uh, or in nature, uh, to let the energy come back, then to deal with that difficult pain. And, but, but not to be afraid, not to be afraid of these difficulties, of these emotions. Often in the, uh, in the fall, I, I go on the rivers, go kayaking in the rivers. I, I'm a water person, so I miss the waves. And rivers, uh, whitewater kayaking you know, has waves. You can surf in the rivers. But uh, uh, the, the rivers have to be a certain height to have fun in them, to have the, for there to be waves. And that requires rain, so there's no rain. So my friends that I usually kayak with are now into mountain biking. So I've started to do that. First thing I learned is that earth is harder than water. <laughs> In kayaking, you fall over, but you, you know, Eskimo roll back up uh, and so forth. But the earth, you just hit, you just hit the earth. And also, they've been doing this for quite some time and they're in good shape in doing that. Uh, so I'm always trailing behind and huffing and puffing and it hurts. It's certainly not pleasurable, but I want to do it. You know, I, I know the feeling and as I make little advances, I, I start feeling really good. Uh, uh, and, and so I push through my limits, I push the edge of the envelope, but I know when I can't go any further. You know, today I went out with a friend and he said, uh, well, it's a new trail. You, you, you want to go? And I looked at him, and he says, the way he was asking me, he said, why? <laughs> he said, well, it's a little uphill. And I said, okay. <laughs> and it was definitely uphill. And at a certain point, I slipped in the mud, and it was still uphill. I couldn't get going again. I, I just surrendered. 
and I just I was huffing and puffing. My heart rate was up, and I said, I'm not going to ride this, you know. And I walked. I walked my bike up to the uh, to a place where it started to get flat, and rested and drank water, and then went again. But each time I go, now it's been half a dozen times, I can go a little more. You know, I can push the edge a little more, and I have more energy, and, uh, and I feel the goodness of it in my body, in my mind. It feels refreshed, energized, uh, and I know why I do it. So it's that balance uh, to have the courage uh, to, to, to step forward, to go forward when you can, and to stand still when you need to, to back off when you need to. Uh, Viri is accompanied by compassion, that gentleness, and skillful means. It's another word for wisdom. So you feel the, the modulation of how much to go, how much to step back. And you let that wisdom surround the activity. And how much more to sit, to walk, to stay up, to stay with difficulty when it comes. Virya is also linked to heat. It's called uh, attapa. Attapa is like tapas in the old Indian ascetics or in, uh, in Tibetan sects. Tapas is, is heat, fire, inner focused inner fire. Uh, and if you may have heard of some of the uh, Tibetan sects that that uh, you know sit nearly naked out in the snow and generate this uh, this heat inside, melt the snow part of their initiation. We don't have to do that here, I assure you, uh, although it's going to get really cold later in the winter. But that same heat, that same fire inside is like the, uh, what, that increased vibration that heat has the effect of, uh, of doing when, it, when it's um, in contact with, with phenomena. So the inner fire of this uh, atapa, which is connected with virya, has the effect of uh, increasing the vibration and, uh, and having a surround of this energy around objects that seem hard, that seem rigid, that seem contracted. And therefore, the power to transform these knots, these tangles, to transform very old, very deep conditioning and patterns of mind. So they begin to become, in that higher vibration, in that heat, they begin to come more soft and pliable, uh, along with the awareness. Uh, but the, uh, the object too, the mental uh, knot or physical knot or tangle, begins to become more transparent, even melt. And the awareness goes right into it and starts to see it in its arising, passing nature. And it's just hurt, just fear, just lust rising and passing, to see it's a Nietzsche nature in continuous transformation, not some solid block, not some wall, but all of a sudden very porous and, and light. And to see it's a Nata nature, no substance, empty, in and of itself. The mind feels lifted often out of that weight of excessive attachment, aversion, lighter, more spacious, rapturous, In fact, these past patterns become the very material and means out of which we awaken. When we, as we begin to see the, the dukkha-desire relationship, 
that the clinging and ignorance is the condition, the direct cause for, for dukkha, for our suffering, for our contractions, we begin to have insight into the various layers of this dukkha-desire relationship and the patterns, the deep mental conditioning formed around them and because of them. Some are light and begin to fall away quite easily. Uh, some are deeper, uh, take longer, and more heat, more energy. Some are very deep, like lifetime uh, patterns that we work with. But a relationship to them begins to change. So that they're not as deeply ingrained in the sense of being um, cut by them all the time, or in denial, or under their weight. We become more attuned to the truth of them, you know, in seeing that they are just, it is just phenomena. They are impermanent. They are not self, and therefore less reactive. The limitations of our past conditioning can become the springboard of our awakening. I like the image of a bonsai plant where it's very depth, beauty, and power come from these limitations. Some of the patterns of our life may have been running around through countless lifetimes in samsara. There's a story of a, a Sri Lankan monk in the time of the Buddha who was you know, he was a, a aversive nature. And he was used to calling a lot of people uh, vasala, which meant something like a wretch or jerk. And he'd just, you know, see these people and say vasala, with ill will. You know, it was with ill will. But then he, he did his practice, had a lot of uh, virya, dhamma energy, and he got enlightened, fully enlightened, arhant. With, with no more kilesas, no more impediments of mind, no greed, hatred, delusion. But the pattern was deep, and the habit was deep in calling people vasala, wretch, and he continued doing it. But affectionately now. <laughs> it wasn't arising out of ill will. So get used to our patterns. Some of them may be around for a while. We feel, we begin to feel success in meditation as we start being able to be with difficulty more without that reactive mind. Just let it in. We begin to feel more accomplished. I remember after the very first uh, long retreat I did, a 30-day retreat, 25 years ago or so, and you know, I was so excited, all this initial energy and it was just a, a wondrous retreat, uh, but I had to go through many stages in dealing with things like knee pain. I was not accustomed to sitting cross-legged on the floor, and there were periods during that retreat where it felt like my leg was just on fire, like it was molten lava. And so, you know, I just work up to have the energy and the strength and patience and so forth. I could sit through that. And at the end, I felt really accomplished. I could, you know, sit an hour or two just feeling this 
this fire in my knee until it became just sensation. I remember going home and back to Honolulu and I saw an old friend, someone I'd known all my life. And I said, you know, Joe, you know, this re- how was the retreat? And he's never been a sitter and probably never will, but uh, how was the retreat? And I was just so exuberant and said, you know, Joe, I, I could just sit with my knee on fire. <laughs> and it was just a flow of unpleasant sensations. <laughs> and he said, uh-huh. <laughs> he never asked me again about <laughs> retreats. There are three stages of virya that we can see in practice. We can see it in a wide uh, cycle over the course of a retreat. And we can see it on little, on little epicycles, on, on shorter little periods of time, uh, and even in a day, or every other day or so. Sometimes even in a sitting, we see these cycles of virya. Uh, the three stages are the initial or launching stage, the second persevering, and the third accomplished energy. The initial stage might be accompanied by a kind of joyous interest and enthusiasm. We shake off the initial lethargy and arouse its enthusiasm, you know, just out of excitement for the practice, for doing it, for entering this place. Anchoring in the present moment through the body, through the breath, through sounds, the effort to, to engage and sustain the mindfulness, let it move in to the experience. The enthusiasm that we have is helpful in overcoming the initial difficulties, the apprehensions that we come to practice with, uh, the demandingness you know, of the first bit of practice. Uh, discomforts, uh, will, anger, all the hindrances, desire and so forth. But that, that initial enthusiasm, joyous energy, helps us again and again just be in the present moment. Just stay with the appearing uh, phenomena until its nature is seen, until it's clear. Again and again we do that, that the initial boredom and distracting thoughts start to grow more distant. We feel more comfortable. The heat of the energy uh, softens the mind and at the same time brings this purifying and protective quality. That is, when energy is present, so is mindfulness. Energy is the direct uh, fuel and power of mindfulness. And when mindfulness is strong, that sati is strong, it's, very, it's quite protected. The hindrances it may come in but they don't stay long. They start to feel more, a little more distant. We touch at times the stream of reality, that is, feel directly the flow of the elements of mind and body. Often we get little visions of the interrelatedness of things, the mind and body, in the beginning of seeing the arising, passing nature, that, uh, that powerful, initial insight. 
and surely boredom, distractedness returns. But uh, this initial energy again uh, re-engages and, and uh, fires the mind, refreshes with the, that enthusiasm, just through the spirit of repetition. We overcome the, uh, those obstacles. It's here often that we have to learn the, the middle way of no blind striving. We begin to connect with the beauty of balanced effort. Once there was uh, a young monk, who, who young man who decided to ordain, become a monk in the time of the Buddha. And he practiced really hard, got his instruction. He went off, nice little cabin in the forest. He was practicing really hard, but he just kept getting exhausted. He just run out of energy. He just couldn't do it. He was overcome, overwhelmed all the time by the thoughts of his previous life and, uh, you know, and troubling emotions, difficult emotions that come up. So he went back to the Buddha and said that he wanted to disrobe and go home. The Buddha said, well, what did you used to do? His name was Soma. Soma said, I was a musician. Well, what did you play? I played the lute. Well, tell me, I want to know how you made good music. Would you tune your lute so that the strings were really tight, that they might even break? And Soma said, no, I couldn't do that. It, it would be an awful sound. You know, and uh, uh, unpleasing to the ear, and it wouldn't make har harmony whatsoever. Well, then, would you make tuning very loose? And Soma said, no, it's a dull, thuddy sound, and, and with the loose strings, that too can't make harmonious sounds. Well, what would you do? And Soma said, well, I would tune the lute so the strings were neither too tight nor too loose. And then I could make beautiful music. The Buddha said, that's how I want you to practice. If you practice too tight, then you're going to become easily exhausted. You're going to feel uh, uh, tense, tight, rigid. And if you practice too loose, you'll feel lethargy, listless. Tune your own awareness, your body-mind. In the same way you tune your lute, you'll be successful. So he did that, paid attention, so that his energy level was neither a high pitch or a, or, or a dull drone, just right. And it was this, as if his practice was a symphony of awareness. Soon he too became a fully enlightened being. It seemed so easy in those days. <laughs> That's the initial energy. The, uh, uh, marked by this joyous enthusiasm and that uh, beginner's mind energy starting again each moment. The second stage is often characterized in the beginning by difficulty. It's a persevering energy and we have to uh, move through um, obstacles, more of the calaces of the impediments, uh, a lot of suffering sometimes there. And the impediments might be both ones that are enticing and, and threatening, difficult. So the persevering energy here is, is a shift, it's a, it's a boost. 
is that greater willingness, a greater allowing, greater acceptance, and we step up both the compassion and the skillful means, you know, how to deal with this uh, more challenging experience. But it starts to pick up. There's an inner momentum, force, that moves, and the practice feels uh, propelled by this fresh force. It starts to move on its own. So it doesn't matter. It can be difficult. It can be painful. But there's no reaction in the mind. It's calm. It's energetic. It's present. In fact, this persevering stage starts to uh, take on an illumined, uh, experiential tone where a rising, vanishing of phenomena are seen as if for the first time. Same things that we've been watching but with a new clarity. The pain, the difficulty aren't gone together, but, it's, uh, but they're inclusive in this field, this range of experience in which everything is seen with more balance, almost equal. Yes, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, it's okay. That's the attitude of this awareness. Whatever it is, it's just phenomena. It's in this second stage of energy that, that confidence grows and an inner kind of joy that's not dependent on sense pleasures, it's not dependent on things going the way we wish them to go. Here too, sometimes people experience a lot of inner light, sometimes even outer light and bliss, very peaceful. A sense of sometimes being able to sit a long time, whereas uh, earlier a sitting in, of, an, of a, an hour the first five minutes of it might have seemed like an hour, and the hour seems like hours. Now, an hour sitting seems to go by in five minutes. The process itself often seems awesome, clear. And here, we need to exercise caution because the, the enticing impediments come up, what we call the... Um, corruptions of insight, where there's a, a subtle attachment to the rapture and to the confidence, and, and subtle craving arises. Identification, it's a subtler form of the papancha mind, proliferating around craving or conceit or views, identification. As everything gets up-leveled, you know, often the closer we get to truth, uh, the more tricky the mind, the more wily, these uh, uh, forces of Mara. So we have to be really careful and not get caught in the enticement, which is also a difficulty, or uh, with the more threatening mind states, emotions, and experience. Walking is really helpful for this second stage of energy, the uh, persevering stage, because it really balances the energizing awakening states with the tranquilizing awakening states. The investigation, energy, and rapture with the calm concentration equanimity. There's an upgraded quality of energy and concentration that comes from meditation in motion. We're, we're actively moving physically, and so that's cultivating a certain energy that doesn't get cultivated when we just sit. And it's the energy to stay with the movement. So that's a mental energy 
that physical and mental energy combine uh, in a different domain than the energy created when we just sit, the Dharma energy. Likewise with the concentration, the, the refinement of staying with the walking experience. Arising phenomena still, just like when we sit, but now it has to be harmonized, engaged and harmonized with the energy because of the motion, or as we move about with the sixth sense door, open awareness. Staying with the, the input of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Sometimes, by skillful means, it's necessary to make adjustments, like intentionally change the object, some place where, where we might be uh, having an entranced fixation, or we're, we're drowning in it, or we're overcome by it, or it's really painful. Pare namita, it's called, change of object. Intentionally put our awareness elsewhere and anchor it there to refresh this persevering virya and fine-tune little adjustments to keep balance. I, someone told me once that we, that we had the technology to build large airplanes long before we could fly them. Didn't know, couldn't fly them because we couldn't turn them. And then someone invented what you call a trim tab, which is a little rudder in the, in the back wing, the central wing. Uh, and that little rudder turns one way and allows the larger wing, uh, rear wing, to turn. It's made a major improvement. Then we could fly planes. We could turn planes. And so we could fly them. It's the same way. It's, it's, a, it's a subtle little adjustments that have major impact on our practice. Often we, we keep wanting to, uh, to do something more major. Often we want to, you know, uh, improve what's good enough. We want to make better which, that which is really fine the way it is, and the very attempt uh, skews the natural unfolding. The initial joyous uh, enthusiasm of, of, of the first stage of energy, followed by the persevering energy, dealing with the difficulty, the suffering, obstacles. The third stage is accomplished energy, going beyond. And here, it's as if it becomes, for at least periods of time, completely effortless. Like the moon pulled by gravity, just orbiting on its own, where energy is producing energy. And awareness spreads, expands, becomes more spacious, and panoramic. Uh, this is uh, capacity for mindfulness and investigation to surround and open and penetrate whatever arises each moment, just as it is, and see the suchness of things. wide awareness in this vast energy field at this uh, going beyond stage of energy. The nature of the mind and body becomes uh, crystalline. This, uh, awareness has this a lightning accuracy of seeing things as they are, seeing the nature of mind-body. 
The mind becomes like a lake, unruffled by the slightest puff of wind. Everything is just moving on its own. Energy, mindfulness, investigation combine as the power to open the mind. Often people here feel the need for less food and less sleep and have just desire to keep doing the practice. And uh, the mind only desires to remain on the object that's happening in this moment. It doesn't wonder much. If it goes off, it bends right back. Or it just wants to reside in knowing, reside in awareness itself. Virya, this heroic energy or courage, strength of heart, joyous enthusiasm for the initial stage, and then the persevering of the more difficult second stage, and then the accomplished going beyond. As I said, one can feel this move in ebbs and flows over the entire retreat, or one can sometimes feel this move in a single sitting or walking, or throughout the day. The task is simple. We lean back in the moment, cultivate calm, enjoying it with energy, you know, through focus, becomes calm, and that, that fire of mind, that heat, atapa, that uh, passionate presence of mind, have the courage to be imperfect, watch for that tendency that we shouldn't have this happening, or this should have been dealt with already. In fact, not look for anything at all in particular. The essential nature of things reveals themselves. Our, our task is to do nothing with full commitment. It's, um, it's said that, especially during that second stage, persevering stage, that the seven factors of enlightenment have uh, a powerful healing effect on the body and the mind. That accompanied with, with the insight stage that occurs with the second stage of energy, the persevering uh, quality, that it often feels like this electricity moving through the body and mind. The whole, the whole energy field of body and mind seems very sensitive and open. And here, They've done actually some studies of this in Burma. The um, complexion becomes really clear, bright, and the, the said that the blood gets very purified. This is as a, a uh, secondary benefit of practice. The primary aim, of course, being for uh, spiritual insight and liberation. But often when the Buddha was ill, he'd have one of his disciples, like Moggallana, chant for him the seven factors of enlightenment, and he'd get better. And, and, uh, and they would do it, the monks would do that for each other when they were ill. Just chant them and arouse in the mind the power of these uh, seven factors, these awakening factors, uh, and leading to uh, that quality of energy that 
brings about healing. But really, we practice out of, out of love, out of the love of this liberating energy. That it is this Dhamma energy that takes us to liberation. Uh, there's an image I'll leave you with of a, a, a lovely in, uh, image of right effort, I think, of this um, balanced, beautiful virya. There's a place in Upper Burma that I've <coughs> visited a few times. It's the monastery of a famous Bodhisattva Sayadaw who's no longer living. Uh, but in the monastery, there are, in one of the temples, there are these paintings all around, in this round temple. You can kind of see a story if you look around. And one of the paintings is of this Mingun Sayadaw when he was on a journey once. He was being driven in a, to some Dhamma talk he had to give, and the truck broke down. They're out in the middle of nowhere, long ways. There's no Chevron stations or anything. And so the picture is of the, the hood up and the attendant driver, and his head is in there trying to fix it. And apparently it was broken all day. He's trying to fix it. And then there's the picture of the Mingun Saira. And he's under a tree. He's lying back in repose with his you know, hands behind his head just observing everything. And there's a caption under there in Burmese that's translated uh, something to the effect of um, in rest or under usually annoying circumstances. Whatever is happening, one can be uh, at ease in mindfulness. And there he is, just kind of laid back for the day, watching everything in the shade of this tree not at all annoyed, just at peace with things as they are. That is the energy of the uh, uh, hero or heroine. Let's sit for a moment. What matters is not our fixedness on any goal, but our commitment to the practice itself. If our practices are constant, thoughts about goals or no goals will have no effect. Rather, the practice itself will naturally have its own fruition. <coughs> 